good day wherever you are and whatever time it is for you. <clears throat> uh, let's en enjoy a few moments of sitting together uh, as we open to the space that is already available to us, but which we come to know by stopping and attending to the present moment. Not something we create, but something that we um, discover and remember and sustain by our sitting.
even though our sitting time is rather brief in the beginning of inquiry, don't imagine that it's a way of waiting, waiting for the teachings to start, waiting for the discussions to begin. There's no waiting. It's the essential expression of our, our true nature, what all the teachings eventually point to, what all the conversations open. And without our return and resting in the embodied immediacy of the present moment in the midst of our lives, everything else becomes interesting and maybe instructive, but not necessarily transformational. of busyness and activity, it's hard to imagine that what seems like doing nothing is so essential and powerful. It brings us home. And home in a way that's beyond our ability to really understand it sometimes, but we can appreciate it with our body. And so we offer our body to our sitting and our breath and to each other. of the robe, please. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. <clears throat> As always, it's a pleasure to see all of you and to be with you and to sit with you and to connect in whatever way we can. You know, rarely have I had such a strong and repeatedly consistent response to someone coming forward in inquiry as I've had this past week in response to Ben's heartfelt and candid questions, which he brought forward uh, right at the last moment last time. And if you weren't with us, don't be concerned because I'll, I'll spell it out. And some of you will remember that in our communication, uh, I had asked Ben right at the end if he would help me, if he would in find a way because his questions were so um, important. It was really the 
the real essence of inquiry. And so I asked him to help me and to partner with me and to communicate what, how we could go forward with what he brought at the end. And in our communications after last Tuesday, here, here's a little something I wrote in one of my emails. I said to, to Ben, I was confident that if you accepted my invitation to partner for this next inquiry today, that you would not only continue to be an inspiration for me, but a resonating guide for others. And I, and I wrote to him, I said, you might be surprised to know that I've had more comments about our interaction than any other part of inquiry from last week or from many, many other weeks for that matter. So many people have reached out to me and said some version of this. Wow, you know, there at the end when that uh, young man, was it Ben, is that his name? Came forward for just those few moments. That was worth the whole session. And I wrote, I bet you were surprised. Or people would say to me, I bet, I bet he was surprised at the invitation um, that you offered. And I can't wait to hear what emerged from, from this. So this is, somehow resonated and got people's attention. And because I had commented to Ben that his calling out and bringing forward his longing, even though he felt frustrated, was the essence of really what he was trying to touch. I, I also sent him a poem, which almost all of you are familiar with, um, but I'll, I'll read it anyway, it's not long because it's important in, in our conversation. And it's the poem that the translator of Rumi, Coleman Barks, used to open his presentation when he was in Austin a few years ago, because it's the opening way of understanding poetry and good dharma. Uh, and the title of the poem is Love Dogs. Very familiar to most of you. Coleman's translation is this. One night a man was crying. And of course, these are, uh, Rumi was a Sufi, so it's in this, uh, this way. One night a, a man or a woman was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said, so I've heard you calling out, but have you gotten any response? And the man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a kind of confused sleep. He dreamt he saw Kadir, the, the guide for souls, in the thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Because I never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. And with Ben's permission, I'm going to just follow his communication and respond to it so all of us can, uh, can join with him and with each other. Ben wrote back and he said, the poem brought a tear to my eye, but I'm yet to understand why. I, I wondered if it maybe brought a tear or at least a touch or a lift to some of you. The poem brought a tear to my eye, but yet I'm yet to understand why. You know, our practice is to give our, our lives over 
to a kind of a longing which we eventually can't ignore, even if we don't understand it. It may be confusing, but it won't leave us alone. Give your life to be one of them. This is the precursor to vow this disturbance. And the reaching out calls forward with what we long for, what arises in us and the response we get, what happens between, like between me and Ben last time that people were responding to. It doesn't give us an answer, but it begins to open the warm and human response that we require through the longing. And you may think of it as a longing for um, answer to a question or a pain that you have or to, to love or to the divine, whatever your way of thinking about it. And we often don't know the name of what brings the tear to our eyes and has it fall down our cheeks. We often can't describe it. But it's important not to turn away from it. And then next, Ben wrote, I've attempted to write this response several times, but I can't seem to find the words. And ironically, of course, what follows is amazing words, <laughs> even though he said he couldn't find them. In fact, the next sentence, he added some very clear and powerful words. He said, I live in a perpetual state of anxiety and self-doubt, driven by fear and shame. If that resonates for anyone else, raise your hand. You don't have to, but yeah, see all of these people. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. And he went on, he said, I've spent years exploring and understanding my conditioning. It feels like I could write a PhD on it, but it's all just head knowledge. The core belief, you know, like Joko talks about, the core belief that I'm not good enough and will never be good enough, learned so long ago, still pervades my life. And I can imagine this is resonating for many of you, some version of this. It resonated with me because it's so close to my own script, my own uh, struggles. At one point before my father passed, he told me a story that I didn't remember, but he did because it was painful to him. And the story was of him coming to me while I was doing my homework one afternoon. I was probably in junior high or you know, early teens. And he was uh, really criticizing me for not completing some tasks that I was supposed to do, like to take out the rubbish or clean up something. And his memory that he reported to me was that I looked up at him as he scolded me and then just put my head down on my books and said, I'll never be good enough. And he reported it to me. I don't report it as a criticism of my father. He reported it as a pain that he realized what that kind of communication, the impact it has on a boy like me and a, it sounds like a boy like Ben. And I spent years as a psychotherapist exploring and understanding my conditioning. I did get a PhD in it. But knowledge isn't wisdom. It'll show us the territory. And insight actually isn't liberation. It can give us a map and maybe a compass. Knowledge and, and insight, these things show us the door, but maybe we're not able to step through it. We might be able to see, as Dr. King said, we might be able to see the promised land like in the story of Moses, but despair of ever reaching it. 
And it's a kind of a torture. It actually can actually deepen the pain and frustration. But touching the exiled parts of us is the pathway to freedom, but simply touching these tender places can be like poking at a wound or like suddenly turning on a bright light when your eyes have been accustomed to the darkness. It hurts. It can be painful and disorienting. Real freedom, the stepping through, the adjusting to something new requires patience and gentleness and persistence and care. And if we find those things, I asked Ben last time, you know, why did you come back? Why do you come back? And as I think, because of some of these qualities that he finds, not just in me, but in all of you, he, he goes on, he wrote, the overcompensatory strategy of trying to be perfect perpetuates the anxiety and fear of being shamed. The self-consciousness of being seen looking all, you know, hot and red-faced, causes me to feel that shame and avoid people, avoid places and things. Thus, my world gets smaller and smaller, creating loneliness and isolation. You know, we all have manager parts. He calls it this over, you know, compensating strategy. These manager parts which try to solve a problem using strategies which we developed when we were quite young, usually, and, and which might have been helpful to survive certain situations, but are not appropriate as a whole way of life. Instead, they become this endless cycle of striving, which perpetuates the feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. So things actually kind of are made worse in an, a real attempt to help. And even when we have those moments where it succeeds, we then just become really scared that we're going to lose the ground we've gained because we know at some level our solution is a rickety, shaky construction. And we know that every constructed state eventually changes and falls apart because it's the nature of everything. We can't really rely on this like new, seemingly better manager. Because if this is the way we approach everything, it's just not just coping on the everyday level, but even with our spiritual practice, we develop spiritual managers, which isn't freedom, isn't liberation. And Ben was saying he could feel that. In fact, he said, his words, I continue to use the same addictive strategies and conditioning to cope. Don't we all? Still, and then he lists his, still hammering myself in the gym, uh, using an external strategy to try and feel okay about myself, which of course is a delusion, doesn't work. He has this deep insight. What are your habitual strategies, each of you? What are the feelings you end up perpetuating when these manager strategies don't lead to the kind of liberation or awakening, any kind of freedom or release, what do you end up feeling? What if you simply stopped the habit pattern without even knowing what else is available, just stopped for a moment and paused? And this is what we do when we're sitting. And to feel what you're resting in. Not, not going deeper and seeing what's underneath it all. That's a kind of a, a psychological excavation that can be really helpful in therapy, but can take you into deeper labyrinths of conditioning, but isn't what our sitting is. And it's also based on an assumption. There's something wrong with me. And if I can get to the bottom of it, I can sort it out. 
And this is the beginning of the belief in a curative fantasy that our spiritual practice will allow. And if you cling to that image of what our practice is, you can miss the more spacious and open awareness in which everything is arising and passing away around you. And that's not a simple step, but it's one that's possible. And one that as a teacher, I'm going to keep offering and supporting and encouraging. Ben then says, you ask me why I keep coming back. And if I'm honest, it's out of hope and desperation for something to change. All of you know this one, right? He said, I so desperately want to be seen, but I'm scared to death of being seen. And that's the question that every one of you faces when I stop talking and, and I say, I click the little thing to raise your hand. I'm so, I so desperately want to be seen, but I'm scared to death of being seen. Our deepest fear and our deepest longing are the same thing. To love and to be seen, to be loved, to see others. It takes courage to practice wholeheartedly without the deluded notion that you're going to manage your way to some happiness and ease that's all going to be great. Better conditioning will never help you arrive at the liberating freedom of the unconditioned. Just getting better conditioning is not going to offer you what the Buddhist teachings offer you. Spiritual managers are still managers and aren't your true self. And Ben knows this. He's so wise. He said, I live and fully operate out of my conditioning still and the self-centered dream, which is why I sometimes project my anger onto those who have largely broken free of their conditioning. I feel trapped and stuck, which can then lead to like, like, what's the point? He used a stronger word, but you know, what's the point? And which he, he calls flop mode, that kind of giving up. But giving up, all the attempts to manage, but failing is in the end, finally, extremely useful. And this is actually the Buddha's story. He learned all the meditation practices, all the yogic practices, all the teachings, all the spiritual techniques taught to him by his teachers. He studied and practiced in a masterful way. And in the end, realized that while he could enter these amazing states of consciousness, it just simply didn't answer his question about suffering and the end of suffering, because that was his only question. So he was stopped. He succeeded in all of these practices, but he failed in answering his question. And he had to stop. And so he sat down under a tree as a failure and stopped trying to change himself into a yogi or something else he was not, which he thought might be the solution. And he was left with the same thing that all of you, that I'm left with. His body, a history and all the conditioning that comes along with it, a human heart and mind, each moment changing into the next moment, each breath flowing into the next breath, the contingent flow of just this as it is. And this is what he rested in and where he found his freedom. Freedom from all the ideas about who and what he should be. And finally accepted who he was and the life that he actually had. 
and things opened up. You know, last week we spoke a lot about um, uh, cooking and sharing meals, uh, especially as they're played out in retreat. And we didn't talk too much about Oriyoki, which was the way in which um, we're served when we sit together in a formal meditation retreat with our bowls in front of us and somewhat like the tea ceremony. And some of you have heard these stories, but it's very important because I was faced with exactly, exactly, exactly what Ben is talking about. And I remember the first time I was learning to serve in these uh, meals. Uh, it's very formal and beautiful the way it's done. And at San Francisco Zen Center, the Zendo would hold about 60 people. It's a lot of people. And I would stand at the door waiting for the, the, the Soko, the person who would tell us when it was time to serve. And I remember standing there with a tray and there were very small bowls of gamashio, a combination of salt and sesame seeds that we would put on our oatmeal with little tiny spoons. And I was to serve a, this little bowl between every third person. And so I was waiting for the person who's in charge to tell me to step into this big room with all these people facing out in total silence. And as I stood there, I noticed that all the little spoons were jumping around because I was shaking. And I realized at that moment how much I wanted to do this perfectly and be a good example. I was going to be exposed. I was going to step out onto this sort of stage, as it were, and everyone was going to see me. And at that moment, all the work I'd done in psychotherapy about my perfectionism that had helped me and harmed me considerably suddenly reoriented. And I thought, I can't do it perfectly. All I can do is when the person next to me nods, I take a step and walk into that room and do my best. I can be wholehearted. I can't be perfect. Some of you also heard the story of years later. I was doing that kind of service at Rinsu and Suzuki Roshi's temple in Japan, in the Zendo. And at the end of the Oriyoki meal, we take a little kettle of hot water and we'd kneel because there, people are sitting on a low platform in front of each person by two and offer some hot water into their main bowl so they can wash their dishes and they drink it. And I was coming to the teachers. I was between Huitsu Suzuki, the abbot, the son of Suzuki Roshi, and Mel Weitzman, the most senior teacher in our group. And I knelt between them and offered Huitsu some water. And when I turned to Mel to pour his water, he's leaning over, the lid of the tea kettle fell off into his bowl and hot water splashed everywhere on him and me. And in horror, I leaned forward because here's my worst nightmare. And he leaned forward and we were so close. And in the silence, Mel says to me, it's only water. And so we cleaned up as best we could and I had to go on with some dignity, just like we do in life when we've made an error. During evening zazen at San Francisco Zen Center one time, a messenger came to the Zendo right at the end of our sitting whispering to Blanche, who was the head priest at that moment, that one of her family members, who was in Japan, had just died. And suddenly, we were called to do a small formal part of the memorial service for our evening service. And I happened to be the person who was ringing the bell, the, the dawn, the person who was in charge of the sounds. Well. I didn't know how to do it. The chant that we were going to do is a Japanese chant, the Daihi Shindarani, which is very complicated. And I didn't know when the bells, so I did my best. But I knew I had done the bell at the wrong time, and I kind of winced like that. But we carried on. And then afterwards in the hallway, when we were walking back and to take off our robes and things, Blanche said, you know, the bell was okay. 
but the grimace was extra. Perfectionism versus wholeheartedness began to shift after years of therapy, which hadn't made it budge as much as it helped. And it's not all gone. I'm still myself. But these things make a difference. Wholeheartedness versus perfectionism. And Ben wrote, despite setting an intention for myself, Zazen most of the time for me becomes setting aside time to think and, and become more entwined with the self-centered dream. This is the paradox of striving and spiritual practice. Effort is needed, but not to construct a Buddha, not to fix yourself. It's needed to see through all of the illusions and all these intentions as we sit quietly and watch them arise and pass away. And we sit with the body as the body and the breath and place our attention on our posture and our breathing, not on all of our thoughts. Thinking goes on in the background, of course, it won't stop. But we can shift what we attend to and what we privilege. And sometimes these things that we think do need attention but our primary attention is just simply expressing ourselves as a wobbly Buddha through our embodied immediacy. So we come to the end of Ben's writing and he offered four questions. Number one, how do we cultivate attention and focus in a mind that's incessantly so noisy, destructive, and well, frankly, a bully? I'll just read the four questions and I'll go back a bit. Two, how do we balance not trying to get anywhere with evolving and working with our conditioning? Number three, how do we know we're on the right path? And four, are there times when sitting zazen is simply not helpful or a useful thing? And I, I list them because these are the fundamental questions of inquiry, aren't they? Number one, how do we cultivate attention and focus in a mind that's noisy, destructive, and sometimes a bully? Well, we learn to open again and again to the space in which it's all arising, rather than being enchanted with the contents of our awareness. If we chase after the contents of our awareness all the time, we miss the space in which those things are flowing. And that seems a little conceptual, I know, maybe abstract, but it's important to understand this shift in perspective. Your mind will always be noisy and a bully if that is the mind that you practice, feed, privilege, and focus on. The noise does quiet down at times if you stay with posture and the breath in a, in a wholesome way, not in a harsh way. You don't want to just bully yourself to do that either just becomes the next manager. And the bullying, of course, is an indication that there are parts in you that do need attention. And maybe some that you bring to your teacher or to a therapist. So you can ask the question, what does this part of you think it's doing to help you? What's it afraid would happen if it stopped doing these things? But these are kind, compassionate inquiries. We can see that these parts of ourselves are trying to protect us, however seemingly misguided they might be. But what is it protecting? This is the deeper question. Ben's second question was, how do you balance not trying to get anywhere with evolving and working with conditioning? Work with your conditioning and therapy. It's really useful. Touch on not just the protectors or the managers, but what's being protected, what I was just the exiles, without their freedom, you'll just have to keep managing. And as the managers begin to relax and exiles begin to be relieved of their burdens little by little, the true self shines forth automatically because it's always been there. It's always with you. Suzuki Roshi used to say, it's always on your side. And non-striving 
We talk about that as a way to approach awakening to our true nature. It's not a recommendation for how to live your life. There are many ways in which it's important to strive and try and evolve in our life. We're only talking about our sitting practice to let go of striving there, not in our life. And sometimes things that we recommend get construed as a general uh, recommendation for life. Ben asks, number three, how do we know we're on the right path? When we asked Joko that, she said, are you becoming a larger container for life energy? Are you opening more and more for life energy to flow through you instead of trying to control life? Remember Ben talked about getting smaller and smaller? What opens you to say yes, yes? Jack Kornfield talks about asking his teacher, Ajahn Chah, am I on the right path? And Ajahn Chah just smiled at him and said, any suffering? Still something to focus on, you know? And then the allied question, number four, Ben says, are there times when sitting zazen is not helpful or a useful thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think of trauma for a moment. Bad things happen to everybody, but too simply, I know, trauma often happens when we can't speak about what's happened to us and we can't move or act in some way. And what are we told to do in Zazen? Sit down and be quiet and don't move. Zazen can be profoundly re-traumatizing for some people. And so we offer them other things to do, to walking in meditation, working in the kitchen. Zazen is essential, but it's not sufficient. That's why I teach this double helix of growing up, the psychological work. That's what Joko emphasized a lot, which was her innovation, and the, the spiritual maturation of a bodhisattva. The double helix of maturing. Remember, zazen is not sitting on a cushion in a certain posture. That's not what zazen is. That's shikantaza. That's just sitting. Zazen is profound appreciation and acceptance of your life just as it is, which is expressed in our sitting, walking, relating, working in the world. It's forgiving ourselves for being ourselves, for all our imperfections, and loving ourselves. So I was reviewing these four questions, and I know I've gone on a long time here. How do we cultivate attention and focus in a mind that's noisy, destructive, and sometimes a bully. Sit with others. Allow them to care for you, and you care for them. That second question, how do we balance not trying to get anywhere, and yet evolving? Same answer, sit with others. Allow them to care for you, and care for them. How do we know if we're on the right path? Sit with others, allow them to care for you and care for them. And are there times when zazen is not helpful? Absolutely. So make sure that you sit with others and allow them to care for you and you care for them. He ended his email with thank you, Flint, with deep gratitude. And now I say thank you, Ben, with deep respect and gratitude. And I know I've used most of our time, but his questions and his teachings were so profound and so practical and so useful to my own practice, and I hope yours, that I wanted to take the time to uh, be respectful of what he offered. <clears throat> and if you're, if you're interested or willing, Ben, would you raise your hand just for a second so you could come forward, Jessica, I'd help you. If you're still with us, I haven't driven you away. <laughs> well, there's my response, Ben. How's it going?
I let everybody see you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. Uh, <clears throat> and you, you don't have to perform or really do anything. <laughs> but I, I wanted yeah. to hear your voice and see your face and let yeah. let people see you. And if you have been touched by this, or you feel like Ben's teachings resonate with you, just put your hands in gusho. See them? I can't see them. No, I'm on a really small screen. I can only see you and, okay. and myself, unfortunately. Everybody, but I, every, everyone is bowing to you. That's all I really wanted you to know. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to send me, you know, ask me to elaborate and, and to then send me an email. Um, and to, to have that opportunity to to really express what I was feeling and, and thinking and what you've said has hit every part of um, what I um, what I was trying to uh, express and uh, has renewed my faith I think in some respects in continuing on on this on this path that's that's the main thing i'll i'll send you all my notes that i've written out my responses so you'll have Thank it you. but I, but it was be. too important not to share with everyone because you're just so right on target so thank you very much and thank you for everybody else thank you to to all thank you thank you ben mm -hmm. and i know we have just a little time left here but if there are other people who have a focus question or comment i would love to hear from you please raise your hand hi flint and um thank you to um to you and and to ben especially for uh being so uh vulnerable in uh, what you offered so um like many people, sometimes I felt that this was written for where I woke up this morning, which was um, to a feeling that I spent, I spend and have spent a lot of my life being dutiful and um, versus really looking and listening to myself. Um, looked over to my night table, which was piled like this with Buddhist books which began to feel like a real burden. And I began to think, you know, this is impossible. Why am I trying to, you know, get a PhD? And, you know, it's not going to work. I'm a, a year and a half into this. So I put most of them away and left only the three that I'm really committed to. And so anyway, I just wanted to offer that. And it has a lot to do with perfectionism, feeling less than, feeling ashamed of, not being where I think I should be, just using this practice in the same way I've used other other um, pursuits in life. So yeah, that's that's worth uh, worth noting. I've yeah. I've spoke another story which I know most of you have heard, but not everyone, and it's so important. I'll just repeat it here. I was very touched by an interview with um, Houston Smith, the, the great scholar of comparative religion, and near the end of his life. He, he was interviewed by someone and they said, you've studied all the world religions, you've practiced many of them. Is there some prayer or practice that sustains you now in your 90s as you approach the end of your life? And he said, yeah, I have it by my bedside table, just like you did, Rosemary. He said, I have it written down on a piece of paper. It was given to me by a nine-year-old boy. And the interviewer said, well, what does it say? And he said, it's a prayer. And it says, dear God, I'm doing the best I can. Thank you. There you go. There, okay. You're on now. How interesting and how liberating that your response to some of these situations you've been in where you felt less than 
um, or imperfect or potentially or whatever, you, you came up with, I'll just do the best I can. And what that nine-year-old's prayer was, I'm doing the best I can. Interesting thing for me, as a Baptist preacher's daughter, who was certainly set with the goal of perfection, I would bring home A pluses from all my grades, and my parents would always say, "Just we just want you to do the best you can." Well, I twisted that to mean, "What on earth is the best I can? It must be farther." It must be more than A pluses. It must be more than perfect somehow. But then today I've also heard echoes of Jesus being quoted. I can't remember which, where the exact scripture is. Be ye perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. But I also remember that when I studied that word the best I could, in Greek or Aramaic or whatever it was. So that was in Aramaic and it doesn't mean perfect, does it? I will finish. I will try to finish what it meant to me and what I meant in my, what I understood it to me. Whole and, and wholehearted. Mm -hmm. And that's doing the best you can, I think, if you, if you look at it that way. And it's also a motto, a mantra I've been using, good enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good enough and uh and it's also what i've heard from you before about one pointedness mm -hmm. and it's also kierkegaard purity of heart is mm -hmm. to will one thing to have that intention of doing the best i can whatever that means it's new to me today mm -hmm. it's got a new twist to me today good. the one pointed intention and purity of heart to will one thing. Thank you very much, Ben and Flynn and all Absolutely. of you, all of you. I did the same thing you did, Sheila, with my perfectionism. I took uh, the, the generous and really kind responses of my mom and dad who said, you know, you can do whatever you want. That's, that's fine. But I, I took it as I'm supposed to do everything. That wasn't what they meant, but that's what I, and I remember watching my grandfather preach. He was a Baptist preacher. And we would sing just as I am without one plea. But, and I thought that that meant I would be accepted exactly as I am. And I took that until I got old enough to realize that that congregation didn't want a gay boy. And I realized it wasn't true. And so I practiced Buddhism and stepped away from the church until I could come back and realize aside from the church, the teachings were exactly the same. It's like, as Marcus Borg said, meeting Jesus again for the first time. These things are real and personal and profound. It's not just teachings or esoteric things. This is how we make our way through our lives together. And why I suggested that in some ways there are many responses and levels to what Ben said, but sitting together and caring for each other is the essence. And Catherine, Wanted to say, Ben, that um, I, I'm so very touched by how you articulated your feelings. And this is <laughs> something similar things I've struggled with all my life, and um, so that was very touching to me to hear. I wanted to say that I, for me. A large part of the of the way is anger and just allowing your your vulnerability to be seen and, and then just to let yourself rest in 
the support of other people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's why I thought that was the essence when everything comes down to it. And, and they, other people can see what you can't see. And sometimes they can mirror it to you. Um, but other times they just forgive you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for doing so within your Sangha and offering yourself, because I know also as a, a minister's child, you've faced some of these things, things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. This isn't a struggle you're having on your own. It's a struggle mm -hmm. all of us have. Yeah. And Catherine, uh, Catherine is much closer to you, Ben, than I am. Reach out to her, you know. <laughs> She's a very wise woman, <clears throat> especially Hilda. <laughs> thank you thank you Catherine I feel an immense uh, gratitude for all of you uh, Ben happened to be the person who came forward to offer this uh, and, and our, our um, what arose between us is where the, the teachings arose but it's true for all of us and everyone that comes like Rosemary did and Sheila and Catherine and each, each week somebody comes forward <clears throat> and it's that what comes between and what opens is what's important, not the one sitting over here or the one necessarily stepping up. It's what comes between. Next week is an unusual week. And so I'm asking uh, uh, the wonderful uh, lead teacher from the Open Doors Zen community, Suzanne Kilkas, who started our series of you know teachers uh, she'll be leading next week <clears throat> on Tuesday. And then on the Wednesday, the very next day, at the same time, I'm going to be doing a Way Seeking Mind talk on the way to Dharma Transmission because I was unable to finish the ceremonies and to the Dharma talk in September. Uh, we still have this wonderful place in Austin where people are going to be able to gather, but we'll be able to do it online so all of you can join in. And for those of you that don't know, a way seeking mind talk is basically a spiritual history. What is the mind that sought the way? The thing that called us, like in a love dog's poem, what calls us to end up here doing this? How did I how did how did I end up doing this? And so <clears throat> it's not full of teachings necessarily, although they'll be woven in. It's basically my history, not just a reflection on my teachers but more the background of how I ended up here on this road to Dharma Transmission. So if that's, that might be interesting to you, please join in also on the Tuesday for inquiry and then on the Wednesday, same time of day, uh, for the Way Seeking Mind talk. And I look forward to all of you. So let's uh, now invoke the, the four practice principles together. <clears throat> Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you very much for your participation and for showing up and supporting this process and supporting Ben and supporting me as we move together. Jessica. Thanks so much, everyone. Apamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity and your support makes such a huge difference. Thank you all so much. 
There's a link for contributions on the website and please indicate um, what you'd like those contributions to go towards uh, the teachers or the programs or building. And um, if you have a chance now, we will um, stay afterwards for a little after inquiry chat and uh, that will be uh, monitored by Maria. Thank you.